I happen to be a native Hoosier. That unique term is used to describe someone from the state of Indiana. Although Indiana means land of the Indians, the state's native population is currently less than a half of 1%, making that moniker for the state's residents both inaccurate and inappropriate. Perhaps for that reason, they settled on the term Hoosier sometime during the 19th century. Although the nickname stuck, no one quite knows how individuals from Indiana became identified as Hoosiers. And some of the leading theories have to do with less than flattering depictions of my neighbors. For instance, one such origin story claims that there was a canal builder in Tennessee by the name of Mr. Hoosier. Reportedly, he preferred to hire only Indiana boys for their unique ability to dominate a good old fist fight with rival construction firms. The state was originally settled from the south, which leads to another story claiming that when the early Hoosiers made quite a bit of noise traversing the dense forest that used to cover the state. When the residents heard someone trampling near their homes, they would yell, who's there? But with their deep southern accent, it sounded more like Hoosier. But my favorite story of all belongs to James Whitcomb Riley, who suggests that the early southern settlers of the state were prone to having a few too many drinks, which often led to bar fights. Oddly enough, the word fight always makes me think of Abraham Lincoln, who made his boyhood home in Indiana shortly after the settlement had begun. The strange connection comes from the movie Fight Club, where Tyler Durden identifies Lincoln as the number one historical figure that he would like to fight, stating, big guy, big reach, skinny guys never go limp, they fight till they're burger. But what does this have to do with Hoosiers? Reportedly, the drunken brawlers would resort to biting off noses and ears in order to claim ultimate victory. Accordingly, the resident's nickname originated from the tavern workers, who upon sweeping up the debris would stop to yell out, whose ear, in their southern drawl. It's hard to believe that over the course of 200 years that we can't pin down the meaning behind a nickname that is known far and wide. But the true meaning of Hoosier is far from alone in the category of things that have been lost to history. My children all know the name of Marco Polo. Not because they listen to this podcast or to their social studies teachers. They know the name of the intrepid 13th century explorer from the popular pool game that mimics the rules of blind man bluff. The person that is designated as it closes their eyes and yells out, Marco. The other contestants are obligated to immediately respond, Polo, allowing the tagger to blindly move towards them. Why do they yell Marco Polo? No one has much of a clue. One theory purports that Marco didn't know where he was going and thus one kid is obligated to explore the pool as though they were blind. But Marco was traveling with his father and uncle, men who had already made the journey once before. Plus, that theory never explains why Marco would yell out his own name while exploring. Another theory claims that Marco fell asleep within the Taklamakan Desert, 
a poor location for a nap considering that the land's name translates to the desert from which one never returns. The connection to the pool game comes from a story that upon waking, the explorer heard voices and responded with polo before realizing that he had hallucinated the ghosts around him. The story with perhaps the strongest connection between the explorer and the water game comes from the return journey to Venice. In that journey, Marco was placed in charge of delivering a princess to a cousin of Kublai Khan, who was ruling the Persian portion of Genghis Khan's former empire. This version claims that after a shipwreck, the 18 survivors out of the 600-man crew tried calling through the fog to their leader with his first name, Marco, and he responded with his last, Polo. It's a wonderful connection, except for the fact that the Venetian made absolutely no mention of any shipwreck let alone one that resulted in the loss of 97% of his crew. 700 years of scholarship have made it clear that we will never know the true answer. But that is something that comes with the territory regarding the man, myth, and the legend of Marco Polo. Considering that his own account is the only recording of the journey, skeptics have poured through his words choosing to focus on the fact that the explorer failed to mention the Great Wall of China, but saved room for a lengthy eyewitness account of both dragons and unicorns. We'll attempt to explain the importance of his travels while unpacking the controversy that comes with the Great White Ambassador to the Empire of the Great Khan. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This series focuses upon the intertwined legacies of Venetian explorer Marco Polo and the Chinese emperor Kublai Khan. Episode number one, A Chance Exploration. Marco Polo happens to be one of the worst writers in human history. Despite that notable fact, he was responsible for one of the world's first historical bestsellers. His travel guide, originally thought to have been titled The Description of the World, introduced the European Old World to the significantly older world that was the imperial court of the Chinese ruler Kublai Khan. His wasn't a discovery of a new world. After all, Europeans had long ago become reliant upon Chinese goods that passed through the hands of numerous merchants along the 4,000-mile Silk Road. The Mongols, who at this particular moment in time formed the dynasty that was in charge of northern China, had previously introduced themselves directly to their distant European neighbors through the excursionary forces of Subadai, the greatest general of Genghis Khan. His 25,000-strong Mongol horde appeared seemingly out of nowhere and easily defeated established medieval armies in Kiev, Warsaw, and Hungary. 
but the scourge of God's forces had vanished just as quickly. In the wake of the destruction wrought, Europeans came to refer to the Mongols as Tartars. One of the only Mongolian tribes the Genghis Khan had refused to assimilate into his clan. They also prayed for salvation from the Christian warrior of the East, Prester John, a man whom the stories claimed had killed millions of Muslims throughout the Middle East. But just as we know that a strong southern accent can turn whose ear into Hoosier, the names of Prester John and Genghis Khan have quite a few linguistic similarities. While most Europeans begged God to prevent the Mongols' return, others sought to understand them. But their discernment efforts were hindered by ignorance. Historian John Mann tells us that in the 13th century, Europeans knew virtually nothing about the world beyond their homelands. Maps represented beliefs more than information. The Last Judgment and the Garden of Eden were as prominent as landmasses and oceans, and the ill-formed shapes of imagined distant lands were populated by monsters, men who fed on the smell of apples, and the sociopod whose single giant foot shaded him from the sun. The three continents of Europe, Asia, and Africa appeared either as neat segments of a circle or unshaped blobs. While their thoughts on the globe weren't well-defined, it is clear that they thought it was a globe. In fact, Roman scholar Pliny the Elder shut down any and all flat earthers around 77 AD by stating that we all agree on the Earth's shape, for surely we always speak of the round ball of the Earth. I've got a free million-dollar idea for a TV show for anybody listening. Find 10 teams made up of flat earthers and offer them a $75 trillion prize for the first team to reach the edge of the earth. That reality show could go on forever. 700 years later, European monk Bede explained to his students that the reason why the same days are of unequal length is the roundness of the earth for not without reason is it called the orb of the world on the pages of holy scripture and of ordinary literature. It is not merely circular like a field or spread out like a wheel, but resembles more a ball, being equally round in all directions. Fast forward another 600 years to Marco's 14th century and little had changed regarding our understanding of the globe. As proof, England's Hereford Cathedral, home to one of the only surviving copies of the 1217 Magna Carta, presents the Mappa Mundi, something that the BBC describes as one of the oldest, largest, and most curious medieval maps in the world. The atlas, drawn on a single calf skin, identifies 420 cities, with Jerusalem marked as the center of the world. Ironically, it is maps such as this one that helped to inspire a generation of conspiracy-believing flat-earthers. 
Amazingly, only 66% of American millennials are confidently sure that the Earth is round. We utilize maps for navigation, but the Mapamundi had a far different purpose, as they put more effort into the artwork than the usefulness. It was never designed to be taken aboard a ship. Instead, it has lived for the past 700 years, literally chained to the library walls of the cathedral. While it depicts more than 400 cities, it also includes more than 500 images of mythical beasts, biblical figures, ancient artifacts, and non-Christians. But Marco Polo wouldn't have had to trouble himself with any of these questions, as he had two guides who had already survived the journey halfway across the world. Representative Marcos Gandalf and Bilbo Baggins were Niccolo and Mafio Polo, his father and uncle. In 1253, Marcos' elders set off from Venice, which was at the time its own powerful kingdom. Unbeknownst to Niccolo, his wife was pregnant with their first child at the time of their departure. The two men's goal was to get rich. It was one that mirrored the expectations of many of Venice's residents during the 13th century. The tiny kingdom initially made its income through the sale of locally sourced salt. The product was a necessity for keeping food fresh and providing flavor, as the spice trade had yet to fully make its way to Europe. Every geopolitical decision can either bring fortune to your land or tragedy. Venice happened to have made the right decision three consecutive times. The first was their decision to aid the Byzantine Empire during the 992 Arab Uprising. 100 years later, the Venetians promptly came to Constantinople's aid when it was challenged by the Normans. For their courage, Venice was rewarded with unfettered free trade rights throughout the Byzantine sphere of influence. Their duty-free exemptions also came with the right to land adjacent to ports across the Adriatic Sea. Opportunity reared its head again in 1100, with Venice coming to the aid of the Christians on crusade. This third consecutive roll of the dice resulted in the canaled city gaining the right to control trade from Syria to little Armenia. Their own efforts had extended their aquatic empire to Alexandria, Egypt, as well as Tunisia. Trade requires ample monetary supplies to keep opponents from overtaking you. For that, Venice added glass to its impressive trading portfolio. Around the 1200s, the city's glassmakers had discovered a way of making significantly clearer stained glass. The recipe required Levantine soda ash, which the Venetians held a monopoly on. They managed to keep their proprietary design secret for more than 300 years by sending assassins against any glassmaker who threatened to go rogue. Scholar Davis Kodrowski reveals that while it benefited their own empire, the Venetian stranglehold on glass hampered the development of Europe by noting that the scientific revolution only began after Venice had lost its monopoly on the technology. 
Once the genie was out of the bottle, Roger Bacon used the new techniques to develop the first pair of glasses, which enhanced the working lives of scholars and helped to spread literacy throughout the continent. The prolific spread of glass windows that came once competition lowered the price also helped to increase the duration and efficiency of indoor work, while the spread of greenhouses resulted in healthier diets due to the newfound ability to produce fruits and vegetables all year. But in Niccolo Polo's time, Venice maintained its lucrative trade in salt and glass and occupied the role of the key middlemen for all trade between Asia and Europe. The Polo family was wealthy enough to have a large home on the corner of two small canals. The family also was known to have servants. Thus, he was able to continue on his journey even after finding out that his wife was pregnant with child. Still, even successful merchants lived just one failed exchange from bankruptcy. The Polo brothers left Venice to set up shop in Constantinople, what, according to They Might Be Giants, is now called Istanbul. Although Niccolo had assured his wife that he would only be gone for two years, the brothers spent the next six trips around the sun in Constantinople, exchanging their goods for jewels. I like to think that I would have happily turned around and returned home, smiling to myself at the good fortune that my business decisions had brought me. But I also know that I wouldn't have left my wife and child for the first five years of the kid's life. Of course, it is easy to imagine walking in another's shoes. I'm sure when Niccolo set out, he only imagined staying away for a maximum of two years. But then greed caught up to him. The Chinese philosopher Lao Tzu, whom scholars are divided over his existence, reportedly said that there is no calamity greater than lavish desires. There is no greater guilt than discontentment. And there is no greater disaster than greed. And Ali, whom Shia Muslims consider to be the successor to Muhammad, told his followers that greed is permanent slavery. Pockets aflush with jewels, the Polos next headed to Crimea, territory now held by Russia, but legitimately part of modern-day Ukraine. Their goal was to trade the jewels for goods from the newly risen Mongol Empire of Genghis Khan. Specifically, they were seeking out wheat, wax, salted fish, Baltic amber, Siberian furs, and slaves. Although it had already been 30 years since the passage of the Great Khan, the Mongol Empire, which had split into four separate kingdoms, was still intent on expansion. Unlike their famous ancestor, however, the newly formed hordes were content to grow wealthy through trade, rather than by conquest. The move backfired, as the brothers were unsuccessful in haggling against rival merchants from the Republic of Genoa, another Italian merchant state. 
Seeking to undercut them, they travel deeper into the territory of the Golden Horde, traversing into the modern state of Russia. The gamble paid off, and they received double the value of their jewels in the form of trade. Marco, the boy who Niccolo had never met, would have turned seven by this point in time. Our main historian for this series, Mann, informs us that at this moment, chance intervened twice. First, the Greeks and the Genoese together retook Constantinople from the Venetians, killing some, mutilating others, and barring the Greek islands to all Venetians. Unable to use the sea route back to Venice, the Polos were stranded. There was another way, overland through the Caucasus and western Persia. But just when the first door closed, so did the second one. Burke, the leader of the Mongols in Russia, used his new Islamic faith as an excuse to turn his army loose against his non-Muslim cousin. For the brothers, there was only one escape route left, an even longer way round, eastward, through the heart of Central Asia. In the best-case scenario, it would be a detour consisting of an extra 2,500 kilometers. As fate would have it, they only made it halfway before a Mongolian civil war trapped them in Bukhara, a city in modern-day Uzbekistan. That city served as a major stop along the Silk Road. One of the reasons so many doubt the authenticity of Marco Polo's story is that large chunks of it are missing. We don't know, for instance, the name of Marco's mother. Although he recorded more than 100,000 words regarding his journey, he neglected to mention by name the only parent that he knew for the first 16 years of his existence. Likewise, we have no understanding of what the Polo brothers were up to for three years in Bukhara. In 1265, however, they suddenly become known to an emissary of another one of Genghis's relatives, Kublai Khan. Man informs us that the unnamed envoy was astonished to learn of the presence of two wealthy Europeans, arranged a meeting, and was even more astonished to discover that they spoke good Mongolian, as they should have after four years of exposure to the Mongol world. The envoy invited them to join him on his return trip to China. Marco's book, The Travels, grants us insight into the conversation that ultimately drew his father further from him and his mother. One shouldn't be astonished by the inclusion of a conversation that Marco was not directly privy to. Presumably, he would have heard the tale directly from his father as they journeyed together back to China. Rather than working on his book throughout his journey, Marco was known to take notes. His style was more akin to journaling than researching. In fact, the entire work was ghostwritten for him while he was imprisoned. But that is a tale that we'll dive deeper into during our fourth and final episode of this series. Marco claims that the conversation between the envoy and his father began with the ambassador insisting that, Sirs, I tell you that the great lord of the Tatars never saw any Latins, 
and has great desire and wish to see some of them. And so, if you will come with me all the way to him, I tell you that he will see you very gladly and do you great honor and great good. And you will be able to come safely with me without any hindrance. Essentially, the Polo brothers were told by an Asian man that his boss had never seen two white boys and was curious enough to pay them to show themselves to a lord who was halfway across the known planet. We don't know what Niccolo and his brother were thinking when they accepted the offer. Perhaps they hesitated over concern for his wife and young child's well-being. Perhaps they had already become slaves to greed. Perhaps they were just bored, sick and tired of waiting in a foreign city for what must have felt like an eternity. We don't think that they undertook the mission for educational purposes, or for holistic chance to bring two worlds together. These men were traitors, after all, always searching for an opportunity to enhance their bottom line. Hindered by their own short-sightedness, they never sought out to tell their story in the same way that Marco had. Thus, they are rendered as mere side characters within Marco's story. A story that was dominated by the presence of one of history's so-called great men, the Mongol ruler of China, Kublai Khan. Kublai Khan was the grandson of Genghis Khan and the son of Tuli, the fourth male child of the Great Khan. His elder brother, Monkey, was granted the first chance to rule the Mongol Empire, ascending via a traditional Kuratai in 1251. That happened to be two years before Niccolo Polo bid farewell to his wife. The new Khan placed an immense amount of trust within his younger brothers assigning Hulagu to govern Iran and Kublai to administer the lands of northern China, the former home of the Jin dynasty. There were rumors from the beginning of his rule that Kublai Khan was secretly carving out an independent kingdom for himself. He did so by transforming himself into the ideal version of a Chinese emperor. He even established a new capital according to his own interpretation of the Chinese practice of Feng Shui. It was named Xanadu, and although the city was described in great detail by Marco Polo, it became merely a location of myth and legend after it was later destroyed upon the fall of Kublai's dynasty. The fears attached to his efforts at independence became real in 1257, when a Mongol audit found significant evidence that Kublai's official books were riddled with deceit. But the two brothers put their troubles past by turning their attention to a new enemy which threatened to unseat the Mongol rule in the region, the Taoists of China. For centuries, the Confucians, another traditional religious group in the area, held sway throughout the cities of China. But the Taoists and Buddhists were in the midst of a war for converts in their effort to become China's second most influential faith. 
The Mongols, of course, worshipped their own god, the Great Sky, but continued Genghis's tradition of remaining tolerant towards the faith of those that they conquered. Seeking to settle the doubts of his people, Kublai Khan decided to hold a public debate between the competing religious factions. The single largest point of contention was that the Taoists claimed to have converted the Buddha himself to their faith. The final debate was overseen by 300 Buddhists, 200 Taoists, and 200 Confucian scholars who ran Kublai's Chinese bureaucracy. The Khan ultimately ruled in the favor of the Buddhists, declaring that all pamphlets that included mentions of the false Taoist boasts were to be immediately destroyed. Reparations were made, and some Taoists were then obligated to convert to the faith that they had attempted to subvert. Despite the doubts regarding his loyalty, Monkey and his brother reestablished their familiar bond through their shared love of conquering. It was during the conquest of southern China that the great Khan, Monkey succumbed to a waterborne illness, likely dysentery or cholera. His sudden death set off a civil war, which fragmented the Mongol Empire once and for all. Arik Boke, a younger brother, immediately challenged Kublai's rule in China. It was the act of an opportunist as Bokeh had been stationed within the Mongol capital of Kartorum at the time, essentially seizing power before Kublai could come to the court to claim it for himself. Kulagu, in control of Baghdad by this point, initially stayed out of the conflict between the two brothers, perhaps awaiting the result of the outcome before then deciding to expand his own empire. With his enemy in charge of the forces from Mongolia, Kublai had to convince the Chinese to defend his rule. It was during the early stages of the subsequent civil war that he adopted the policies and mannerisms of the people he governed. For instance, he justified his rule by adopting the traditional Chinese persona of a great sage. Rather than spilling blood like his grandfather, he preached tolerance suggesting that he was the only thing that stood between the cultured Chinese people and his uncivilized Mongolian brother. Showcasing the complex balancing act that was required, he promised to reduce the Chinese people's taxes and moderated his rule. On the battlefield, he cut off his opponent's supply lines, forcing him to wait for spring in order to advance in earnest. By that point, Kublai had managed to consolidate his rule over the Chinese people, forming the impressive Yuan dynasty. It marked the first time that the Chinese were ruled by an outside ethnic group. Intelligently, Kublai cut off the opposition from potential allies, isolating Bokeh and forcing him to surrender after three long years of open conflict conducted entirely on Chinese territory. By 1264, Bokeh was a prisoner in the care of his elder brother. He died under mysterious circumstances within his cell while awaiting trial. 
a trial that was designed to cement Kublai's rule in the Khanat of China. Although the Yan Emperor adopted elements of Chinese culture, he ensured that ethnic Mongolians were perceived by the law as a station above those that they ruled. Historian Eric Ringmar points out the great lengths that Kublai went through in order to retain a hold of his identity, reminding us that the emperor insisted on using traditional Mongolian in all official communication. He also set up the forbidden palace within his capital city of Beijing. This portion of the city was reserved for his court where they could set up their gur, which were traditional Mongolian huts, which they continued to prefer to regular buildings. There were hills in this enclosure too, and animals which members of the court could hunt in the traditional Mongolian fashion. In short, the Forbidden Palace wasn't forbidden because of how nice it was, but because of how Mongolian it happened to be. Ten years into Kublai's uncontested reign as the head of the Yuan Dynasty, the Polo brothers were brought before the Emperor. We don't have a true fly on the wall, but John Mann's research has led the historian to conclude that their initial interaction was heavily influenced by the continuing divisions in China wrought by the fights between the Taoists and the Buddhists. The historian believes that Kublai either sought to use the Polo's link to Christianity as a counterbalancing force within his kingdom, or that he was perhaps a closeted Christian. He derives the latter theory from Marco's own words, which described the Khan in near saintly terms, to the point that the Venetian had to later worry about being seriously accused of devoting his allegiance to a pagan idol worshipper. Despite the Europeans' complete lack of knowledge about the Chinese, Kublai Khan already knew a great deal about Christianity. In fact, his own mother counted herself among the Christian sect of Nestorianism. That particular faith formed in Syria during the 5th century. The key dividing line between it and other branches of Christianity is their insistence that Jesus the man and Jesus the Son of God were two wholly different entities. Thus, a Nestorian would never agree that God suffered on the cross. Instead, they would state that Jesus the man suffered death through crucifixion, while Jesus the Son of God, a divine entity, could never be forced to languish in pain. Kublai Khan met with the Polos and, according to man, charged them with two requests for the Pope. First, 100 priests, educated men well able to argue the truth of their religion and rebuke the idolers. Then, according to one edition of Marco's work, Kublai and all of his followers would convert to Christianity. Second, Kublai asked for some holy oil from the church built upon the site of Jesus' crucifixion. We aren't quite sure what the purpose of the second item would be, but Kublai, like all of his famous ancestors, were awed by magic. In fact, Mann argues that the reason the Khan never committed to a full conversion was that the Christians were not good enough at magic. 
noting that the idol worshippers could conjure up glasses full of wine, control storms, and predict the future. Empowered by their imperial mission, the Polo brothers departed from the presence of Kublai Khan escorted by a Mongol guardian. Their Chinese passport, known as the Piazza, conferred upon the brothers safe passage through any Mongol-controlled lands. It also entitled them to utilize the Yam system, which connected the eastern and western portions of the empire. Stationed along the route were eager messengers with fresh horses. Sir Henry Yule, the West's foremost scholar on Marco Polo, notes that by the end of Kublai Khan's rule, there were more than 1,400 postal stations in China alone, which in turn had at their disposal about 50,000 horses, 1,400 oxen, 6,700 mules, 400 carts, 6,000 boats, over 200 dogs, and 1,150 sheep. The postal stations were 15 to 40 miles apart and packed with enough food so the couriers could live and efficiently travel 20 to 30 miles per day between stations. Spectacularly, the Mongol couriers turned each message into an easy-to-remember jingle. When Genghis Khan departed from this world due to internal complications from falling off of his horse, word reached Subadai's forces stationed in Central Europe in just four to six weeks. Of course, the Polo brothers weren't just sending a message. They had to travel the entirety of the Silk Road, which took the better part of three whole years, something that Niccolo blamed on poor weather. They arrived back in Venice in 1269. Their journey had lasted for 16 years. He arrived home to the tragic news that his wife had passed away in 1262, leaving their son, whom Niccolo had never met, to be raised by the boy's aunt and uncle. Expecting to never meet his wayward father, exploration wasn't in the boy's thoughts as he had received an education learning about foreign currency, as well as how to appraise and handle cargo ships. His destiny at this time appeared to have been one working within the bureaucracy of Venice. Unfortunately, no one alive knows how the family reunion went down, nor do we get to know the thoughts of Marco having finally met his ghost of a father, a man whom he knew virtually nothing about, Nor do we know the state of mind of the 16-year-old when he was informed by his father and uncle that he was to join them when they took up the second portion of Kublai Khan's mission, a trip to the Vatican in order to secure the priests and oil requested by a ruler whom he knew even less about. It was under these circumstances that Marco Polo, a 16-year-old child, would set off on a journey that would forever change the world. Join us for our next episode, which will cover Marco's own journey to the court of the Great Khan.
I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.